All right, everybody, welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. This is episode two of our Christmas comparison of Die Hard versus Lethal Weapon. And to start it off, we're going to have a very classic Christmas introduction to this episode. All right, listen up, guys. Was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, except the four assholes coming in the rear, standard two by two cover formation. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, if this is your first time to listen to us, all I can say is welcome to the party, pal. Man, you know, we started this like a year and a half ago. I did not anticipate how much work that we would be putting into this thing, but... It's been an amazing year. Do you remember when I called you about a year and a half ago and said... Yeah, yeah, come out to the coast. We'll get together, make a podcast, Well, I'm very proud of what we've done so far this year. We've had an awesome time. We've made lots of friends and put out what what we think is a pretty good product. Well, I'm hopeful that our listeners think so. We've definitely had a great amount of support from everybody. And this is kind of an amazing, you know, like almost bittersweet end to a thing. But I mean, we're just done with chapter one, ready to go on to chapter two. So it's a great way to end the season with two of the most amazing movies of the 80s, right at the time that they're in all of their glory, it's Christmas time. It is. This podcast is not the, is it a Christmas movie podcast? Hmm. But here in just a little bit, we're going to talk about- We'll touch on it. Whether we think these are Christmas movies or not. Right. More importantly, we will defend the fact that they are Christmas movies. (laughs) There you go. There you go. (laughs) All right. Our executive producer on this episode is Chris Walkden. That's walked in with a D. It's I'm sure he gets it all the time, Christopher Walken. But Chris, thank you so much for your support. He is our first Patreon subscriber to pay us in pounds. Love it. Love it. Chris, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Yeah, can't say thank you enough. If you want to be an executive producer of one of our episodes, just go to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash Shirley Podcast. And you too can become an executive producer of one of our shows. Okay, cool. All right. So jumping back into it, I've learned a couple things since our last episode, even though it was just a short time ago that I feel the need to share. So Joel Silver is the producer behind both of these movies. We talked about him a bit in the last episode. He was the one that got Shane Black in there in Predator. And he's obviously the one that had him write the script for Lethal Weapon. He's the one that had 48 Hours, which then leads us to Stephen D'Souza coming in, helping out on Jeb Stewart's script. He's very much an integral part of both of these stories. But here's something that I bet that most of our listeners don't know. When he was in high school, he went to Columbia High School in Maplewood, New Jersey. And during that time there, he and a friend of his named Buzzy Hellring created the rules for the game Ultimate Frisbee. They were the creators. Joel Silver, who has given us some of the best movies of all time, also was one of the creators of Ultimate Frisbee. He has been inducted into the Ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame because he was one of the originators of the game. That is freaking amazing. Yes. I can't believe that. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. And then... <laughs> 
And he is the stereotype of the nasty producer. I love watching this guy <laughs> because if anybody ever complains about somebody or something back, he's like, oh, I hate that guy. I hate He has, <laughs> has no fear about saying, I hate some big, I mean, because who's a heavier hitter than Joel Silver, uh-huh, right? Not many, right? So one of the guys that he hated was Michael Eisner. Like they both worked <laughs> together at Paramount, right? And they hated each other then. And he has been in a couple of movies and one that you probably don't recognize him from is Who Framed Roger Rabbit? At the beginning, you know, the beginning's the cartoon. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, you know, he has the wrong thing spinning around his head. Caught! And the director's all mad. Yeah! He shaved off his beard. He plays the director in that movie. The angry, you know, throwing his stuff down. All angry right. director. Which was an inside joke by Spielberg and Zemeckis because it was supposed to be like a Disney cartoon. And so they had him playing the part, which would be like the Michael Eisner part, because they knew that they hated each other. Uh-huh. And when and when they showed it to Eisner, Eisner's like, who's that actor? Because he had his beard shaved off. And they're like, it's Joel Silver. And he's like, oh. <laughs> well, he did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is great, man. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Have you seen Tropic Thunder? I have. It's been a while, but I have. Yes. Okay, but you remember the Tom Cruise part? Absolutely. It's it's a parody of Joel Silver. That kind of raunchy cigar chomping. That makes sense. Yep, for sure. That makes sense. Both of these movies, I have a feeling, some cocaine use. What? <laughs> <laughs> I've got something for you. Yes, go ahead. Okay, this is something that I learned Okay. that blew me away. All right, go. I, I don't want to try and top you right out of the no, game. No, top but, me, but, man. This is what we're about. I'm not trying to top you, okay? <laughs> I just found this blew my friggin' mind, go. okay? Yeah. The Murtaugh house, yes. where all the action and lethal weapon yeah. happened. One, two, three, four, right? And one, he, Joshua crashes the car through the front door. Two, they blow up the frickin' toilet. Yeah. Part four, the whole house, like, gets blown up, right? Right, right. Okay, so the Murtaugh right. house, it's a character in all four of these movies. Absolutely. Okay, right next door to the Murtaugh house. Okay, this is on the Warner Brothers Ranch. Okay. okay. Right next door to the Myrtle house mm-hmm. is the Christmas vacation Chevy Chase <gasps> house. No. So that means that in this fictional world uh-huh. that the Murtaugh's live in the same house as Todd and Margot. Right? <laughs> Why is the floor all wet, Todd? I, I don't, don't know, know. Margot. <laughs> So what what did Roger Murtaugh say when he saw the lights finally light up at the Griswold house? <laughs> there is a world where the Murtaugh's and the Griswolds live next door to each other. That's crazy. That is crazy. Oh, uh, okay. So appropriate that they're both Christmas movies, though. It absolutely it is. And we will tell you. Why? In just a little while. Right. Do we want to get into the plot? We're kind of... Yeah, let's jump into the plot. Let's let's bounce. Do you really want to jump? Do you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say that every time. (laughs) Well, that's fine with me. Okay. Okay. So both of the movies start off and we see our main characters' vulnerabilities right off the bat. Right? The first time that you see John McClane, he's got white knuckles in the airplane because he's scared of flying, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, your big, big hero character, you got to keep in mind that this was going on at the time of Rambo and Commando and Conan, and where the big hero was invincible. And we introduce our big hero as the guy who's scared of planes. In order to relax, he's got to make fists with his toes. Fists with your toes. <laughs> well, and I guess that's really 
really not all because even as it carries on, we get more vulnerabilities. He's obviously got marriage on the rocks and he's also obviously got an impulsive mouth that we see when he's arguing with his wife. He's kind of a jerk. He's a jerk to Holly and he's a little bit of a jerk to Argyle coming out of the gate. And then with Lethal Weapon, we've got, my gosh, suicidal Martin Riggs, you know, just living in a dirty, nasty trailer, drinking beer from last night, naked at the toilet. How many movies, by the way, in a row was Mel Gibson naked? Mel Gibson's butt got a co-starring credit in, in like his first <laughs> 10 four, movies. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got Roger, who's too old for this. Sh- 50 years old. 50 damn years old. Right. Have we talked about the bathtub scene? Uh, I don't think we did. I Maybe. think we touched on it. Yeah, but so let's just, my wife put this movie on. I mean, God, God bless her. I didn't even ask for it. She put it on as a Christmas movie midday. All the kids are there. I'm like, honey, this is not <laughs> a kid. Didn't matter. Our kids and my nine-year-old little girl loved it. Loved this movie. But that first scene when they're singing him happy birthday and they come in and he's in the tub, all of us were like, why, why, why? Except my wife. And she's like, I think it's a cultural thing. And every single one was like, no, no way. it's not. It's not a cultural thing. I don't think that any culture does that. What, what 18 and 16 and 14 year olds barging on their dad taking a bath. Right. A bath. <laughs> a bath. I mean, why? Number one, why is he taking a bath in the morning? Right. I mean, who? I, I don't know guys that take baths generally at all, but in the morning? No. What? And but, you can clearly see there's not a lot of bubbles. No. The bubbles are gone. No. You got a little turtle head floating to the top, and it's just, <laughs> no. I, not comfortable. His lethal weapon would be exposed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, any other human being that I know, if this happened, would be grabbing the towel like, what the heck are you doing? Get, Get out. out of here. <laughs> we want to say happy birthday. You can tell me later. So then let's go back to Die Hard. Call to action, machine guns firing, and women screaming with their tops off and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and he's got this split second to get out of the room because he's just been making fists with his toes. He's got no shoes. He's barefooted. But he does grab his gun. He does. That's a man with priorities right there. That's right. Grab your gun. Worry about your shoes later. First of all, I just want to say, point it out right out of the gate, John McClane's attitude about attending his wife's company Christmas party. Uh-huh. It's probably the same as yours and mine. Yeah. How soon before we can duck out of here? What is the shortest amount of time I'm obligated to be here? Right. Okay. This is the 80s. And I know that we, we like to say this, but there are three playmates in the movie Die Hard. Okay. So there's three playmates in the movie. Okay. One of them is the topless girl at the very beginning, which that's the scene I've always kind of got got to put my hand over my son's eyes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cover your eyes, kids. There's one. I'll give you one. One playmate right there. Right. You Maybe going into the story behind that one, by the way? Behind okay. how she got that part? <laughs> she got that part because Joel Silver was interested in dating her. <laughs> With the quotations with the fingers right there. In order Since to this is radio and not TV, you get to see the quotation mark. In order to convince her to date him, he had to give her a part in a movie. And that's her part. <laughs> what a payoff. <laughs> All right. So she was in Playboy. All right. That's number one. All right. Number two, well, you got the girl who's the actual Playboy magazine that's on the wall. Right? That's exactly right. That's November of 1987, Playboy. Playboy centerfold on the wall right there. And that boing sound. I got to capture that boing. (laughs) Hi, girls. Girls. All right. One more. The world's greatest action movie had three playmates that barely get noticed. Only hot girl left. Not that the girls at the party weren't nice looking girls. And there were the the police officers were nice looking girls. Not the police officers. 
girl at the airport. Girl at the airport. Ding, 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 ding. Yay. Named all three of them. Good job. Google <laughs> search. Woo. All right. Back on track. Okay. So then the call to action for Riggs and Murtaugh obviously is Hunsaker, right? Yes. Hunsaker's like, you've got to get them and you've got to kill them, right? You got to kill them. You got to kill them. what you got to do. You got to kill them. You got to find them and kill them. Come on. You find them. You find them and you kill them. You can do that. You owe me. Right. And so this is where we see the, the big differing dynamic between Murtaugh and Riggs because Riggs, I mean, Shane Black talks, I've heard him say this five times. Riggs is the monster that gets put away until we need him, right? right? He talks about the gentrification of America and how people live their happy little lives in suburbia and know that the war is over. And this guy's the only guy that really knows that the war is still going on. We got two veterans here. And and by the way, John McClane was also a veteran. Like this was, it was originally supposed to be a three act movie where the first act is in New York and you find out about his veteran status and he you really developed the character. So it's interesting they eliminated that whole thing. Oh, okay. But anyway, these Old War veterans, some of them, obviously, they've got the the sniper mentality of some people just need to die, right? And obviously, Riggs is still in that world. Have a nice day. And so he's this Frankenstein that the rest of society wants to hide and put away until evil comes back into their lives in the middle of suburbia. And then it's time to get Frankenstein out and say, we need you to save us right now. And so when when Hunsacker's like, you got to kill him, you got to kill him. Roger Murtaugh's like, we're going to do this by the rules and we're going to get him. We're going to arrest him. We're going to protect you. And Riggs, first thing he sees from these guys is Hunsacker getting sniped from the helicopter. Right. Which is a great scene, by the way. I don't know if you know this or not. Yeah. Mr. Joshua shoots Hunsacker from his helicopter. Yes. Which Riggs doesn't notice shows. I mean, it yeah. just kind of appears. Yeah, that's a weird. That's a weird thing for sure. But the bullet goes through him and through the carton of eggnog that he's holding. Yeah. And I guess this is from The Manchurian Candidate. Oh, okay. Which was a Frank Sinatra movie. Yeah, I love that movie. Okay, hang on one second, Dean. Okay, go. One of the things they talk about in the movie is that Riggs is a sharpshooter from the war, right? Yeah. That was his background. He was 19 years old and is one of the great marksmen in the Vietnam War. Right. When I was 19, I did a guy in Laos from a thousand yards out. The rifle shot in high wind. Maybe eight or even 10 guys in the world could have made that shot. It's the only thing I was ever good at. Interestingly enough, I read up on, on the scene where Riggs is hiding in the desert and Murtaugh goes to meet the bad guys. He's going to try and get Rianne back and he pulls out the hand grenade and all that stuff. So Riggs is in the weeds shooting this rifle and he's dropping bad guys left and right. right. I don't know if you know this or not, but that rifle, that very rifle was designed for a specific purpose. The 1972 Olympics, when those terrorists took the Israeli Olympic athletes hostage, yeah. the, the SWAT team or whoever arrived to kind of deal with that situation yeah. was lamenting the fact that they didn't have any sharpshooters. Uh-huh. And they didn't have any guns that were good enough. And so that gun that Mel Gibson used in that scene was a specifically designed as a quick, accurate, from long range to take out bad guys due to that Olympic terrorist incident. Interesting. Okay. That's awesome. Okay. So Murtaugh wanting to play by the rules is kind of his refusal to go into the world of Frankenstein. 
to go into this mass killing, and he keeps trying to keeps trying to get him not to kill people. See how easy that was? Boom, still alive. Now we question him. You know why we question him? Because I got him in the lake. I didn't shoot him full of holes to try to jump off a building yeah, with that's him. That's no fair. The building guy lived. No, whatever. The point being, no killing. No killing, right. Have you met anybody that you haven't killed? <laughs> I haven't killed you yet. <laughs> Don't do me no favors. <laughs> and then John McClane's refusal of the call. He's not trying to be Rambo, right? He's trying to get the cops. He runs and hides. Yes, he runs. He and pulls the fire alarm. Yeah, he's trying to get people to come help. The people he, who should be helping, he's trying to get to come help, and he can't get them to come absolutely. help. Absolutely. He wants the firemen to show up so he can kiss their effing Dalmatians. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got this very interesting thing that he's working against both the obvious enemies and against what should be the good guys, which should be the authorities, right? Yeah. He's working against both of them. Both of them are against him. Attention, whoever you are, this channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Oh, Lady, do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? That's right. He's pretty effing unappreciated. <laughs> glass? Who gives a shit about glass? Okay. And then we talked about the fact that Die Hard is sort of a buddy cop movie, right? I would say so, but yeah, go ahead. But it's interesting, these two movies, if you, if you call Die Hard a buddy cop movie, they are like number two and number three of the buddy cop genre. Number one, you want to guess? What do you think it is? The number one best? First. No, no, no. First, like, where we've, the buddy cop genre starts, where do you think it starts? Man, um, I don't know. What do, you, what do you got? 48 Hours. Oh, good call. Yeah. Steven D'Souza. Yes. And so both Jeb Stewart and Shane Black both point at 48 Hours and say this was the beginning of the buddy cop movie. A lot of people will say Lethal Weapon, but 48 Hours is really the first one. I can see that. I can see that. And so you've got Al Powell and you've got John McClane. And obviously Al is there as kind of a mentor to help kind of guide him. Not that he's like wise, but just that he's a voice of reason and support when it appears that the whole world is against him. Now, the question for from me to you is... Who is the mentor between Riggs and Murtaugh? I don't know. What do you think? I think it's both as yeah. much as you can cheat that answer because it's Joe Pesci. It's <laughs> not in this movie yet. <laughs> it's the next movie. Oh, shoot. Okay. <laughs> so Murtaugh is trying to be the mentor for Riggs, right? He's trying to assure him that there, that there can be a better way. You know, Riggs has gone into full crazy and is just hanging on by a thread. Hey, look, friend, <laughs> people either think I'm suicidal, in which case I'm effed and nobody wants to work with me, or I'm trying to draw a psycho pension, in which case I'm effed and nobody wants to work with me. Basically, I'm effed. Yeah. I don't want to work with you. <laughs> hey, don't. Ain't got no choice. <laughs> Guess we both effed. <laughs> we can do this all day, right? Yes, right. Okay. Hey, one thing I want to talk about as, yeah. as we're moving through the plot. I'm sorry. No. Lethal Weapon, there are three scenes that introduce Riggs, okay? Oh, yeah. One didn't make the movie, but it's in the director's cut. And so you have the Riggs where he's at home. He's bare naked and drinking last night's beer. The one everybody saw in the theaters yeah. back in 1987. Clearly, he's sad and depressed and messed up. Yeah. Okay. Then you have the other one where he's at the school. This is on the director's cut. He shows up. There's a school shooter. There's like a sniper. Sniper. Yeah. And he, everybody's ducking for cover. Riggs walks out in the middle of daylight. Right. And he says, I'm still here. A hole. Right. And the guy tries to shoot him and Riggs mm -hmm. drops him. 
Right. Okay. Let's him miss a couple of times. Like he doesn't even start shot, shooting is. immediately back. He just stands there, just trying walking to towards the guy, trying to light a cigarette the whole time. It's the equivalent of Rambo screwing his explosive arrow tips in uh-huh. while the guys are trying to shoot him. He's just getting ready. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that was in the director's cut. Then there is a deleted scene. Riggs is at a bar. Yep. And these three robbers try to yeah. work him over. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last time. Yeah. So interesting. So they couldn't they, quite they figure didn't that out. Want it to be that dark? Like the the bar scene was too dark, and then the sniper scene was too immediately killing a guy. They wanted the character to not be quite so dark as Shane Black had written him because they wanted there to be hope. You know, this the, the, the you look at those first two scenes, and there's a guy with no hope. Right. And so what you have then instead is the Christmas tree slash drug deal scene, which is fantastic. And you told me about one of the guys who's doing the drug deal, the very last guy to survive. He's like, he's lost his mind. He's got the crazy eyes and he's threatening him at the end, the long hair. Okay. Yes. I absolutely learned this and I was blown away. So the Christmas tree lot where Riggs is doing this drug deal and he's paying a hundred bucks for all of the cocaine in the world. And they're like hundred thousand. I love the line where he's like, they're like, you ain't a real cop. Now that's a real badge. I'm a real cop and this is a real gun. And he says it was such intensity, I'm not going to try to match it. But the last guy left, the guy where he's like, hey, shoot this guy. Just shoot this guy. That guy's name is Blackie Dammit. Uh-huh. Dammit. 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 His real name is John Kiedis. He is the father of Anthony Kiedis, lead singer of Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> Oh, of course. Of course. They look so much alike. That's awesome. How about that? Yes. <laughs> okay. So the original question is Murtaugh the mentor or is Riggs the mentor? It looks like Roger Murtaugh. I would is say Murtaugh is. Until when they take his daughter, Riggs becomes the mentor. Riggs has to be the one that says, Good but point. we got to do it my way. We, we got to kill him. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Great point. And then I would say that Riggs kind of gives that mentorship back at the end of the movie. Okay. Frankenstein goes back into the castle at the end of the movie. So right. Keep going. Okay. So then we've got two guys who cannot be good cops. They can't be good cops. You've got the scene with Tony. You won't hurt me. <laughs> You're a police officer. Police officers have rules. Yeah. That's what my captain keeps telling me. Smack. Now, even at that point, he wasn't trying to kill Tony, right? That was just a happy accident, really. That was he was very lucky, yeah. Yes. And then with you know, Riggs is obviously got a bad habit of killing people too quick. And so Murtaugh's like, Can we can we just question the guy? <laughs> I shot him in the leg. Still alive. We can question him. Okay, let's I, I want to back up a step because okay. right before Murtaugh shoots that guy in the leg, yeah. let's back up a second. There's a suicide jumper Uh that Riggs goes up to help down, right? His job is to bring him down. And Murtaugh says, look, no guns, no jujitsu, just bring him down. Uh That's his instruction. So Riggs, as we know, is suicidal. This guy is clearly suicidal. Uh He goes up and says, hey, you want a cigarette? And when the guy reaches for a cigarette, he cuffs him. Yep. And that's the, do you really want to jump? Do you really? Okay. And if you watch that scene, there is a blooper in that scene that bugs the crap out of me. Really? So here's the deal. When Riggs pulls the guy off, they're going to jump. As they jump, there's a slow motion where both guys are clearly stuntmen and they're both leaping. Okay. Their handcuffs break. Oh, And they link hands. They like lock hands. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, can we... 
Can no, we try it again? No CGI, and you can't. Yeah, <sighs> so it was still the best take. Every time I watch it, I'm like that. Those cuffs break instantly. And yeah. they hold hands all the way down. So, yeah. but that scene is great because yeah. you learn that Riggs really is suicidal. Right. Because what follows immediately after that is Murtaugh offering him his gun, trying to get him to prove that he's really not crazy, but what he does instead prove, I mean, gets his thumb caught in the hammer of the gun as the trigger gets pulled. That's and I watched that with right my there. son. He didn't catch that until this last viewing. Yeah. And when he sticks his hand, the hammer hits home. Uh-huh. And pinches his finger. Yep. So. Yeah, I mean, half second later, and he's boom. He's brains on the wall, like full, full metal jacket. Yep. Okay. All right. You ready to talk enemies? Yes. Okay. We have in both circumstances a bad guy and a bad guy's number two, which might be worse than the bad guy himself. True. Right. You've, right. You've got Hans, and you've got Carl. Hans's job is to keep things in order. He's not concerned about John McClane in so much as getting revenge on him or anything like that. He just wants to keep him from messing up the plan. You've got to stick to the plan, right? Stick to the plan. And then Carl, I want blood. <laughs> Carl doesn't want neutral. He wants dead. <laughs> <laughs> and then for Lethal Weapon, we of course have... The general. General McAllister, that's right. Who is ultra calm in all circumstances, right? And then we've got Joshua, who is reserved and controlled, but has the crazy behind his eyes, which is why Gary Busey was the perfect choice for Absolutely. this Absolutely. Right? Gary Busey was awesome. That He's that albino jackrabbit son of a bitch that <laughs> shoots rigs, right? Right. Oh, I'm mad now. <laughs> okay. And so the the distinction is on the enemies here though is in Die Hard, you've got a whole slew of bad guys. And they did really a very good job of giving each of these what would normally be just kind of faceless henchmen names and personalities. Right? Really true, yeah. John is also, as I said just before, working against Dwayne T. Robinson and Johnson and Johnson and Thornburg. Yeah. I mean, he's got everybody in the world against him. Here's the interesting part. You've got well-trained German mercenaries and then you have well-trained American mercenaries, you know, yeah. Die Hard versus Lethal Weapon. But the superiors don't seem to be against Murtaugh and Riggs in this movie. It kind of happens that way in the following movies a little bit, sure. but not so much this one. And the other police officers are helping out. Like this is, it's definitely, they've got some support, whereas John is acting completely on his own. Well, except for Ellis. He's going to help him out. John Boy. <laughs> hey, John Boy. <laughs> Hey, you know, one of the things I was going to mention, you, you kind of brought it up there, but in the Lethal Weapon movies, the L.A. cops are not incompetent. In Die Hard, the L.A. cops are completely incompetent. Certainly Detective Dwayne T. Robinson is. Well, yes. And gonna Al have, Powell drives a car like Al Stevie Powell. Wonder. <laughs> They're turning my car into Swiss cheese. Uh, now. Yeah, but you got Dwayne T. Robinson, the guy's coming in the front door. Clueless. The oh, guy yeah, that's who true. Grabs the rose sticker on and his. And the quarterback is toast. <laughs> By the way, do we like Theo? The do you car. like Theo? There's a lot of hate for Theo out there, and I think Theo is I love absolutely Theo. hilarious. I love, I love Theo. Theo. Fantastic. When he comes in, his opening scene, he's like, "Magic, this is just to AC. Back to magic. Over to Kareem. Boom." 
Yeah. Just, he has that great interest. Hey, do you want to hear my Danny Glover imitation? More than anything in the world. <laughs> okay. I don't do imitations. <laughs> I got one imitation, very short, Danny Glover uh, as Roger Murtaugh. You ready? Yes. Hey, hey Riggs. Hey, Riggs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> hey, hey, Riggs. That's all he says like 50 times. He does, do <laughs> he does do that a lot. He does do that a lot. Okay. So what do you think are, is the lowest point for these guys? Like what's the lowest point? Let's start with John McClane. What's the lowest point in the movie? When he's picking glass out of his bare feet. Totally agree. Totally agree. That's not an 80s tough man when he drags himself into the bathroom leaking blood everywhere. Yeah. And it's that, I mean... Have you ever stepped on glass before? Oh, yeah. Hurts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> All things being equal, I would rather be in Philadelphia when I step on glass. <laughs> yes. Nice. <laughs> this is nicely done. It is a fly in the ointment. It is a monkey in the rush. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, this is where he, when he reaches that low point, he has that moment of revelation where he realizes what a jerk he's been to his wife. And this is the thing you talked about, Jeb Stewart realizing whenever he almost got, you know, you know when he gets hit by the, what he thinks is a refrigerator box. I mean, it is a box, but it's just the box. Right. He thinks he's going to die having just had a fight with his wife where he knows he's wrong and is never going to have the opportunity to just say, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the low point for Martin Riggs? Yeah. When he pulls the trigger of the gun and Murtaugh gets his hand caught by the hammer. Okay. Okay. Like you said, half a second later, brain's on the wall. Yeah. I think that for it to be truly the lowest moment, there has to be the turnaround. Like there has to be okay. the turnaround. And so I'm going to say after he's been tortured by the okay. electric shock. Cause he's just, I mean, he's hanging defeated. He appears to be dead and still manages to come back to life. And I'll say this, the scene where he grabs the guy's head with his legs is a bit absurd. It's absurd. Cause the guy's just letting his hands. <laughs> really? This guy's just gonna let his hands hang back. They need to register Riggs's ankles as lethal weapons. <laughs> right. And so I would say that also Murtaugh's lowest point is that same incident, right? They're both captured. They're both tortured or beaten. And his turnaround is, I'm ready to break the rules. Yeah. I'm ready to do whatever it takes to get these guys. Hey, one, one of the things I want to point out, just a little tidbit. Go ahead. A little side tidbit. Yeah. I, I don't know how to verify this, but there's a scene right after the suicide jumper. Riggs pulls down the suicide jumper. Yes. Murtaugh uses a mobile phone to call the psychiatrist and says, look, this guy's really crazy. She's like, absolutely, he's crazy. Uh -huh. You should not be around him when he blows. Right. My understanding is that is the first on-screen use of a cellular phone. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I don't know how to verify this. That's one of the things I read. Interesting. You know how the to, internet is. You want me to drive? <laughs> no, I'll drive. Well, you want a fresh fry? <laughs> okay. And then again, another parallel. The triumph, saving a kidnapped member of the family, right? Yeah. Both man. movies, you have a kidnapping. Both movies, the heroes are related to the kidnapped victim and have to save them. And fan freaking fantastic. Oh, it's amazing. Love it. So that brings me to the death of the bad guys. So let's talk about enemy death in Lethal Weapon. Okay. okay. All right. Death number one is the general, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Murtaugh gets the general, so to speak. My 
who was it? I think Caleb was watching my 11 year old. It's like, he doesn't even get to shoot him. Right. And that was a, that was an interesting thing. You know, he's, he, he dies kind of of his own. He flips the car, the car's on fire and there's grenades laying around. Right. It, it's his it's his own instruments that put him to death and it's his own arrogance that puts him to death because instead of like taking cover or backing the car back into the garage, they're like, let's just drive as fast as we can at this police officer who has to have a gun at this point. Right. But you see him break down. I mean that, that death scene where he's just panicked, he's lost all composure. It's there's a grenade by my face. Yep. And I can't reach it. Yeah. Hey, right before that yeah. scene, just back up just one second. So Riggs does the lethal ankles on the torture guy, comes in, takes over, shoots some bad guys, Joshua and the general get away. Yeah. Okay. Now the pursuit is on at this point and he rescues Rianne and Murtaugh. Yes. When they come out, they go to the, the heavy metal dance club, whatever it is, right? Oh, yeah. And he just starts blowing people away. Right. And, like, nobody notices right after they shoot the bartender. That was another thing. I was like, why did people not start running until, like, the fifth guy died? Riggs just walks out and just starts shooting people. Yeah. Now, we, as the audience, just take for granted that those are bad guys. Clearly, it's a front for... They had a name tag on. It said, <laughs> bad guy. It's all right. Riggs just walks out and says, blowing people away. <laughs> hey, man, we're closed. Boom, boom, boom. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and then we have the death of Hans. The death of Hans. So we talked about these movies being cowboy movies. Yes. And we'll talk in a bit about them being Christmas movies. Yes. But you've got the hero at the end of his rope. And what does he do when he realizes he's only got two bullets, two bullets, left, two bullets and, and two bad guys. The you movie got does Huey a- Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you have the perfect end to a cowboy movie, a joke followed by a bullet in the head. It's awesome. So awesome. So what does he do? He comes in with the machine gun in his hand because he has taped his revolver, although I know it's not a revolver, folks. Don't don't write in. Right. To his back with tape that says season's greetings. Yeah, I know. More Christmas. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's a face-off. Here it is. It's the showdown. And to further emphasize the cowboy moviness of it all, Huey Lewis gets the bullet in the head after in the middle of his laugh. Poor guy. (laughs) (laughs) Funny joke. Actually, I guess it's Hans that makes the joke, It's right? hilarious. It's, it is the worst pronunciation <laughs> of motherfucker <laughs> ever. What was it you said again? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. yippee a motherfucker. Then Hans doesn't die right away. And, of course, the damsel in distress has to be saved. And, you know, she's being pulled out of the window and what is it that won't release from her hand? It's that Rolex watch for that job she got. Yeah, the one that Ellis was so intent on John looking at at the beginning. Yep. So has to release the rewards of her women's lib so that the cowboy hero can save her. That's right. Quit your job. <laughs> stay on with your husband. Is yes. that the message? Yeah. Kind of is, right? Kind of is. But hey, you know what? That's part of the reason that guys love this movie. All right, 
Well, that does it for episode two of the Die Hard versus Lethal Weapon. All right, D, the good news is you don't have to wait that long. We're actually going to release episode three tomorrow. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.